On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, Certified Financial Planner, Certified Investment Management Analyst, and Co-Founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, Brent discusses some of the most important and interesting topics of the day as they relate to finance, the economy, and beyond. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh. Brent, you've got quite a crowd joining us today. We we do have quite a crowd. We've got uh, several panels that I'll introduce here shortly, but the topic is an important one. So my friend Jeff, uh, I've had him on in the past to talk about this issue of trust. It's definitely something that I think is, is hugely important. I mean, obviously, we've got I turned on the news this morning and at least just around politics, we've got all the associated stuff with the Biden family. We've got the indictment of Donald Trump. So you've got it happening now on both sides of the aisle. You look at people's trust of the media at an all time low, people's trust of corporations at an all time low. And a lot of these large institutions and in society in general, all of this stuff that we're doing is undermined by the fact that we've got to kind of trust the people that we are working with. We have to trust the institutions that we're working with. And I would say, at least in the Western world, I can't speak as much to, to other parts of the world, but I think the trust in a lot of these institutions that have been really pivotal and really critical in terms of keeping our society together are, are at an all-time low. And, uh, and Jeff is, is, a, is an expert on this as well. He's, he's actually written a book on this. He's going to be joined today by Douglas Lines and Karen Jones, who also have a great deal to say about this topic. And I'm just looking forward to diving into it because I think it's something that if we're going to get back on track as a society, we've got to rebuild, at least begin the process of um, halting this decline in trust that we've had over the last several years, but also re- rebuild trust to the levels where it's where it's going to uh, hopefully move us move the ball forward. So, Jeff, is that a fair assessment? Is that a good intro to what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, I think it's a great intro. And, and look, you made some very valid points uh, on and around the geopolitical issues but i don't i think what we we're missing here that look number one this is this is what i would call like the new normal era because it's so complex and so dysfunctional right now you know i think leaders leaders in every area of of, of politics in in business and actually leaders if you remember the last the uh, podcast we had i talked about leadership at home and what that represents i think that we are facing unprecedented times. I think that um, we've got to constantly relook and revisit the organization that we represent. And we've got Russia, um, you know, blowing up Ukraine, and we've got Ukraine blowing up Russia now, you know, from a geopolitical point of view. We've got the energy crisis, we've got increased interest rates, we've got, we have. Um, you know, business supply chain issues. We have zero trust, zero data trust issues. We have divorce rates at the highest. I think it's one in two now. Um, sad to say this, but, you know, one in two div- divorces are taking place. This is an actual behavioral shift, which is causing trust to come into a decline. Number one, I think number two, we've got to get back to what I call the foundation of trust, and I'm and, and I'm deeply honoured to know that um, I have both Douglas Lyons here today, and also Karen Jones, because I think some of the solutions 
of what we're talking about. Whilst trust is an active behavior and it's an output behavior, some of the most intricacies that we need to talk about is, is, is very much driven by Douglas and Karen with their specialist expert fields. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. So, so Karen and, and Douglas, could you give us an intro in yourself in terms of how you got involved, interested in this topic and what your connection is with Jeff? So Karen, I guess we'll start with, start with you. Mm, my, well, I'm, I do what I do because I, we're all at work more than we're anywhere else generally. So I have a passion for how, how do we manage the culture and the climate that enables people to turn up to work at their best, with their best selves. And I think what I hear time and time and again is that most people want to do that, but there's a whole load of interference that gets in the way. So I work with clients to diagnose their organizational culture and to begin to look at the climate that leadership teams are creating. And what do you, and what do you see when you're, when you're coming into an organization? Are we talking, what size organizations are we talking about? They can be small SMEs of 50 or they can be global global companies of, of, of 15,000. So and it doesn't you... really matter the size of them. It's a much harder, complex process to change the larger the companies, but the issues are generic across all of them. Yeah, let's, let's talk about some of those because, you know, I think human nature's pretty consistent across the board. And that obviously applies to organizations as you, as you put more and more human beings together. But if you had to point out a couple really significant issues that you see, regardless of the size of the organization, that are, that, that are happening, that are impacting uh, employees and, and the public's perception of, of, of trust of those institutions, what, what would that be? What are the big red flags that you consistently see? I would say vulnerability and openness. I think we have a terror of sharing truth. Uh, and I think that starts with leadership teams and with individuals within a leadership team. Somehow, we seem to spend an awful lot of energy hiding what we really believe and assume to be true. And give me an or example it, of that, where you've seen something like that happening. Well, I, I see it on when we, when we diagnose organizational culture, we split the data into um, hierarchy and level. And we'll have the leadership team saying, yes, we're absolutely crystal clear on the strategy or the, or the vision. And then their next direct reports are saying, I'm absolutely not. Now, it might mean that I'm clear about it and I don't like it. Or it might mean that you never communicate it with me. And, 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 and for me, I really don't understand why very senior leaders believe that actually it's up to them entirely by themselves to write a strategy and then maybe or maybe not share it with the people who are trying to implement it for them. And is that something that you're still seeing where, uh, you know, obviously the people that are closest to whatever the issue is on the ground at, at the, I don't want to say at the bottom of the hierarchy, but the people that are most connected to the day-to-day -day operation of those businesses, are we still in a place, at least in the business world, where their input is not being considered by those at the top? Yeah, I was, I was doing a debrief with a client yesterday and the HR director was saying that they can only get 20 minutes from the CEO. It's fast. Right. We're fast. And I, you just think, wow, if you're, if you're investing in a cultural diagnostic, but you can only get 20 minutes from the CEO to even talk about it, that, that to me is rather, rather worrying. Yeah, I can understand why that would be for sure. <laughs> now, now Doug, Douglas, what's your connection with these two? 
Well, um, it's a good connections. Uh, brings it's always wonderful to be here with you and your listeners. And I'm uh, Jeff's business partner in London. And uh, also, um, Karen and I and Jeff um, met uh, some time ago at a, at a thought leadership event, um, actually our thought leadership event in the city of London. And so, um, you know, definitely aligned between Karen, myself and Jeff in terms of our views on, on trust and more importantly, even culture. And, um, you know, from my side, I've, I've really been privileged to, to look after um, some very senior people in, in politics, in institutions, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So from, from small businesses all the way through to presidents, I've had exposure to and looked after over many periods of time. And, 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 and I think the learnings for me is that where you have trusted leadership as a, as a bedrock in terms of, of skills and attributes that a leadership team aspires to, you know, longer term sustainable performance. So I am enormously passionate about executive leadership and and what is what are the skills and attributes of executive leaders and their teams going forward and i'm a big big fan of the amount of effort that we spend on strategy you should be spending years the similar amount and um i think what karen was saying in terms of you know ceo spending 20 minutes in culture is to me a dismissible offense quite frankly you know that's just ridiculous so um and we see it often you know we see it often in the in the in the companies that we engage with is very little uh, emphasis on culture in, in 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 many respects. Looking at Jeff's you know view of the world now in terms of the operating environment, we actually see a survivalistic um, mentality in in business out there, and you couple that with the um, you know the, the strain of mental health and all the pressures, and it's actually given rise to in some cases toxic leadership, which is clearly uh, the worst environment that you could face. So it, it is something which I think it's we've all got to strive to to make a difference in whatever we choose to and whoever we engage with. Um, but it is a real need out there in business right now. The other thing I think is, you know, what Jeff and I are passionate about is technology, but, you know, I was just saying um, the other day is to, to Jeff is that if I remember when we were kids growing up and the pressures we had with technology was actually minimal, you know, versus, versus now and the generations that are coming through and the expectations of, um, of, of life, uh, it is really, uh, you know, this, this technology accelerating you know everything in life the pace of everything that we do so yeah i think um it goes to the heart of sustainability whether it's in communities whether it's in families as jeff rightly pointed out in terms of the high divorce rate um and sometimes we we forget these things in the busyness and the hecticness of life now i guess i'll pose this question to all of you i think that you know any any institution in order for it to be resilient down to the the family level all the way up to large large institutions there has to be a level of trust from all the participants uh, Douglas, you mentioned this idea of, of toxic leadership, and uh, mm-hmm. and I agree with you. I think that what we've seen, and, you know, I can speak at least to U.S. politics, for example, is you know the, the pivotal people. I'm 50, but when I started getting interested in politics, was in the 1980s. The pivotal people were, were Ronald Reagan, President, and Tip O'Neill, who was Speaker of the House. Two opposing parties <laughs> have a beer together every single Friday. It was my friend on the other side of the aisle who was wrong on this issue, but it wasn't. It wasn't the opposition, if you want to put it that way, or those that might not agree with you. They weren't the antichrist. They were just people that you had disagreements with. And yep. so this idea of toxic leadership, I'd like to hear from all of you in terms of, you know, wh- when that really started, because I'm sure that it's always been the case where it has been out Can there. Can I jump in here? I'm, yes, I'm really, please. This, please. I'm really passionate about this subject. And, um, and look, um, I think both Karen and, and Doug have said some incredible things um, about their respective uh, specialist areas and fields of work. Um, what we are seeing is an increase in mental health 
Um, actually, United Airlines increased my mental health over the uh, Independence Day period when I spent the evening on the floor in Denver Airport. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and then didn't even get water, let alone a hotel room. Anyhow, oh, uh, buys and buys. Uh, we love United Airlines. Look, mental health is going up in the roof. We, we've seen a definite, a definitive increase in people's uh, psychological safety, their well-being, but more importantly, how we've seen mental health shoot up. Actually, IBEM has sponsored um, the Realize, Realize Foundation to really try and help and create impact in, in supporting people with mental health. But let's look at Let's look at the toxic environment that you described. So you know, we can start back 20 years ago when the issue of micromanagement was actually probably at its highest point. But it's not just toxic. Um, you know, Brent, we, we are talking about narcissism. You know, we're, we're seeing, we're seeing self-sabotaging. You know, CEO executive um, leadership teams and CEOs because they just don't possess the competence or the skills or the foresight to be able to lead organizations in a more, as Karen said, a more open, transparent way. You know, the whole idea of the trust paradigm is actually in the way we work and it's the way we share. CEOs now should be more about open door policy, speaking with their employees, speaking, communicating more with their executive teams. And actually, it's, it shouldn't be shameful for a chief executive officer. He or she should have the ability to be able to upskill and actually want to learn more and open um, their, their curriculum, outside curriculum, which is very much the, the way of the new modern leader. What we are seeing is this is what I've been doing for the last 10 years. I'm going to continue. And this is the exit because I need my bonus. Well, they may not even get to their bonus. Right. The fact is that boards of directors are governing heavily now, are putting putting accountability and responsibility into into the eyes of the chief executive and his or her executive leadership team to execute on the new way of operating. And I would like to I'd like Douglas to come in now um, because we, we found in the past that business strategy was just was 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 a solution it's no longer a solution it doesn't even band-aid uh, the situation we do need, know that we need to get it really into the roots of design-led thinking the canvases that wrap itself around and get to the root of the cause of the problem and reinvention because it's reinvention that's driving companies forward right? so so doug i think it's important at this trajectory point that you come in because the issue then uh, you know because I, I think that what we've ex experienced in the last three years by by the new product that we've got is very much that businesses will will not just falter they're likely to fail unless they take the right advice and they execute we're not talking about words of hypothesis and theory we're talking about real execution with measured performance results based on reinvention and not trying to just band-aid the situation we all know that band-aid is, is not going to be enough in this vicious new era new wave era because there's more coming there's absolutely more tsunamis on their way and companies are just not prepared just not ready for the consequences yeah, thanks, Jeff. I think it's that whole analogy that says, hey, we are in a world of very short-term performance-driven 
I wouldn't call it micromanagement, but probably in some cases it is that uh, that uh, detail. And it's the ability to slow down to speed up. And and, I, and it comes back to that, you know, you know, let's take technology right now. We know that AI is a massive hype cycle that we're going through. But the, the reality is, is we know that there's going to be more technologies down the line that's going to, you know, have implications and opportunities for businesses. And so I think it's it's not to always be caught up in the moment, but it's to it's the ability to see longer term. The one thing I've learned, and, and funny enough, uh, the politicians actually taught me this, a really groomed politician thinks 30 to 50 years out. They don't think five years out. And, and it's quite a unique skill set. And and so they have other different dynamics to play with, as, as Brink, you've alluded to. And I was I was enjoying the, uh, the, the Biden-Trump uh, rivalry on Fox News just now. But but I think for me, it's that ability to to just get off the short-term operational treadmill and to have a view of the world that is actually just more progressive in terms of realizing, you know, what I have, what I can do with it, and how I can unleash people when I just use their time more wisely and empower them. And it's that simple philosophy, Jeff, is that when you do that, when you get the combination of, of, of strategy and culture right, you light the flame in people's hearts versus under their butts. And I think that's the big difference where, yeah. as executive leaders, and and it's also what Karen said is that, you know, we, we've always said strategy is the holy grail of the C-suite. Well, quite frankly, strategy needs to be inverted and actually be influenced by those who are with the clients in the front and listen to the clients every day. Mm-hmm. But equally, it's for leadership to create an environment that is allows for this feedback, also to challenge the team in terms of new ways of thinking. And of course, you know, wonderful systematic tools and all those kind of things and design thinking um, that we all uh, know and love really well. Is, is using different approaches to to the way that, you know, our people think. Um, just recently, Jeff and I had an opportunity to meet with a very senior managing executive of a, a global uh, consulting firm, highly specialized in what they do. And um, they're probably one of the most expensive consultants in the world in terms of their specialization. And I really found it progressive because the CEO is very successful, uh, runs a, a large business globally, but he took the time to listen to us to listen to our wisdom and experience and and really say, the number one thing I want to do is I want to open the minds of my senior leadership team. I want them to think differently. And I think, you know, it would be wonderful to engage with you on this topic. And I really don't see that often as, as executive leaders stopping and thinking and saying, how do I open the minds? How do I, I challenge the way my leadership team thinks and has perspective about the future? And that's, it was really uh, uplifting to be in that conversation, but we certainly not not having enough of those conversations. We see the opposite extreme in a very operational, I tactical like, approach. I would like to add, Doug. I mean, Karen made a very valid point earlier. You know, she said, "Look, chief execs only prepared to give the HR director thirty minutes." I don't actually have a problem with the thirty minutes, providing that what's being discussed in that thirty minutes is smart, qualitative, to the point and very valid, right? We had a chief executive who's who's actually got more air miles than Freddie Laker right now, frankly. He, he's flying everywhere. I mean, he, he really is maxed out. He's been in China, he's been in Hong Kong, he's been in India. And, and we, you know, we know that he was coming back to the UK. He had limited bandwidth, but he said, look, this is my time. I'm giving you committed time. Can we get everything addressed within that day at your offices? 
at the workshop and the answer was yes so we we basically do all the prepping around his around what needs to be addressed using his time smartly and efficiently and i don't have a problem with that actually but providing that you're not just talking about the weather and about you know your latest cable tv contract that you're actually talking about the issues that need to be addressed and 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 the prioritization of that and more importantly a plan a an output plan that, that that drives that execution there is a lot of wasted time in meetings we already knew that for before the pandemic right we knew there was a lot of wasted time we knew that that the purpose and the the meaning of meetings during the pandemic and after the pandemic became look we're not just meeting for meeting's sake we're meeting because a b c d and e okay if you got everything you need fine okay and, and so the purpose driven organization became you know really important maybe maybe you'd like Karen to bring you in at that point right yeah I mean we often you know for us mission is a compelling a compelling vision strategic direction intent and short-term goals and objectives most companies are quite comfortable in the short-term goals and objectives some will connect that to strategic priorities most really struggle to have a compelling vision a clear purpose that's beyond stakeholder value EBITDA you know, a compelling purpose has to motivate every single person of that company to come to work because they understand the difference that that company is trying to make. Uh, and I think most companies, in my experience, really struggle with the purpose bit. Yeah. You know, they'll, they'll do the strategy, maybe. They're really clear on the short-term goals and objectives. Um, but, you know, that that purpose connects to the empowerment piece on, on, the, on the involvement and also the core values on the consistency bit. Yeah. What do we stand for? Why are we here? And why would I come to work to give you anything extra? Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, I have kids in their 30s and they're refusing to work for companies that can't tell them. Well, let me ask you this, Karen. So let's say in just a hypothetical example, you've got a company that um, makes pencils or, or steel, for example. In many cases, they would say, well, the purpose of our company is we need to make the best quality steel at the lowest possible cost and distribute it to the greatest degree of markets that we can and grow that way. But give me an idea, but I do, I agree with you in the sense that people have to have yeah. a reason to get up and go to work in the morning. How would you translate a company like that into the broader idea of, well, we're also involved in creating housing and, and, tr and transportation and things. Like, yeah, give, exactly. give me an idea how you walk, how you change that mindset from just, here's what we make. You know, who's using the pencils? Yeah. And what are those pencils doing? And, and at the very least, if, if we can't if we can't find a greater purpose, then maybe we're making the lives of people who work here much better because it's fairer, it's inspiring, it, it we value people. There, there's always a purpose behind something, but you have to dig behind the real belief. You know, I'm I'm a real, you know, Jeff talked about, you know, understanding how our brain works. You know, if we're thinking something and feeling something and therefore acting in a certain way, we can't ever change that unless we go back to what is the fundamental belief. And if the fundamental belief is to make more money so a small group of people can earn a lot of money and we'll do modern slavery for everybody else, people smell that really quickly yeah. because that sometimes is the truth. So at the worst, at the worst end of that truth, you can at least say, how do we make coming to work 
the best possible place that can be for the person that has to do that. That's and that's a tall order. And I would ask you all if if the good thing I would imagine and tell me if I'm wrong on this is that any company that you're going to be moving into and, and beginning these discussions there, they realize there's an issue that needs to be addressed anyway. So you've got a somewhat receptive audience, I guess. Mm. But where do you, I don't even know if this could be even too broad of a question and, uh, and whoever wants to dive in on it first, please do. But where do you even start in terms of trying to change that culture and adding a purpose to the organization as a whole? Well, for, thanks, for me, I'll go on, Doug. So, um, thanks, Aaron. Yeah, I've actually lived through this, uh, Brent, uh, over a, a program of a decade with a CEO that came in and did a turnaround. The first thing is it has to be led by the CEO. So I get Jeff's 30 minute effective meetings. Absolutely, I agree with that, but there's much more than 30 minutes when it comes to leading a cultural change program. And it has to be led by the chief executive officer mm-hmm. and his his team, uh, his or her team. And, and so that's the first thing. The second thing is you need to have a, a measurable tool that can measure the journey. Without measurement, it is very difficult to change because you need to constantly communicate back to your 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 contingent of staff um, on on a regular basis. And and so I was part of a program with a, a great uh, you know professional in the US. His name is Richard Barrett, and I worked with Richard Barrett for ten years on a transformational culture change program. And you know he has a very systematic approach to measuring personal culture first of all at an individual level experience culture in the workplace versus desired workplace culture Mm -hmm. and the difference between desired workplace culture and actual experienced is what you would call entropy which is an engineering term for the amount of dissonance in an organization so and that was a wonderful journey because when we when we started to reduce the dissonance between what people wanted versus what they experienced we saw performance long-term performance uh, Mm -hmm. improve i think another lens which is really really powerful um, in terms of current point around purpose is that um, I'm a big believer in three horizon thinking, and um, and I wrote a book on this, which has been published globally. And and what we see is when we look at three horizons of growth, and, and it's well known is horizon one is to grow the current business, horizon two is to transform the current business, and horizon three is to innovate brand new businesses. Now they may come back into the mothership, or they may not, depending on the nature and the size. And we see most executive teams around the world tend to spend would say 90% of their time or 85% of their time in run the business. Because why? They incentivize on 12-month performance cycles. They then dabble in transformation, which is, you know, and I would call doing a, digitizing a client process is merely transformation. It is not innovation. As much as many people think it's innovation, it's not. Innovation is creating new products, new markets with using your core assets and capabilities. And so it comes back to the example of the pencil that says, well, you know, if we manufacture pencils, what is our core capability? Our core, yes, we make manufacture pencils, but actually we have the ability to manufacture volume products, low value, high volume at scale, and that's a core capability. I look at, you know, institutions like financial institutions and say, well, you have financial strength, you have an awesome customer base, but what do you do with it? All you do is you just digitize their current experiences and you try to outperform each other. And so it comes back to this, this vision, the longer-term vision of, of, of three horizon thinking and really bringing about a culture of working in the business versus working on the business. 
and actually having that at all levels in the organization. And it's that, mm-hmm. uh, I think when we opened up, we talked about psychological safety and vulnerability to allow that to be part of the DNA of your business. And I think in my experience, when we've seen that type of um, philosophy be uh, appreciated and led from the top, coupled with a, a strong culture and a measurement tool by the CEO and his, and his or her executive team, mm-hmm. we really see outperformance um, in, in long-term mm-hmm. outperformance. I think. I, we, oh, sorry, Karen. Please go ahead. No, no, no. I, I just, I'm just kind of going to iterate that. You know, actually having a measurement that that differentiates because you'll not have one culture in the business if you can segment it. You can begin to have a, a much more coherent discussion. Um, you know, I think we don't make culture very tangible, so it makes that it makes that conversation much harder to have. Whatever measure we're using then I think we should start to to define what we mean by that, to measure it. And once there's data on the table, uh, the conversation can begin to evolve, particularly if you've done some work around the climate and the cohesiveness of, of, of the team that's that's discussing the data. Now, Karen, how, I, how do I think you... We got a, no, we've got a bit of a... Uh, I'm going to throw a curveball in here because yeah. there is... there is. I like curveballs. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> we know. I think we've got to have a curveball because... It's not the CEO own strategy, right? Number one, it's actually the board, okay? Um, the board own strategy and they own governance. They actually own the ESG agenda. They actually uh, own uh, the cybersecurity agenda. They actually own many, many things. And now the new trust agenda is being driven by board. So in actual fact, yes, from an operational level, the CEO with his executive leadership, his or her executive leadership, fine. But it's the board that defines, you know, what the charter is for that area of the operation, right, uh, overall. So, yes, strategy, understand that. Actually, culture, very important. Ownership comes from the board down. Yeah, if we start to get our hands dirty on the operations. I've got no problem with saying that the CEO has ownership, but actually the board govern, the board run, and the board write the charters which effectively the company need to adhere to. And there are subcommittees, there should be subcommittees around audit, risk, people now, because now we've got a chief people officer, as you know, uh, on the board, on a lot of boards, you've got a technical committee. And then you've got uh, cyber, which goes into technical, theoretically. But now you've got trust. You've got trust, which sort of, you know, and risk committee, uh, which risk comes out of audit. But, you know, so most of the main decisions that are being made are made by senior board directors. Now, you've got a question whether he or she that sit on the board have the relevant skill sets to manage the charters. Or Jeff, and I think you bring up a great point. And, you know, in many cases, the board members are not, they're from outside the organization and they may have very different Mm -hmm. agendas. I know that obviously, you know, big one here in the United States with, you know, Vanguard and and BlackRock and State Street in terms of putting their agendas on companies that that may be in very different businesses and they're supportive of it for a variety of reasons. So how do you now, I think you bring up a great point there. And I'll put this to you all, I guess, individually. Because the boards do have so much power, as you've laid out, Jeff, how do you try to get everyone on the same page when you might have a lot of different agendas across those board members? So from 
you know, I've, I've been a board member, as you know, for 15 years. So I've served in that time out in seven companies around various industries. Um, and it's been really interesting because it, many a time you can be putting your proposal of approach forward to the executive leadership team, the CEO. But if they don't know how to how, how to have a seat at the board or communicate more importantly to the board, um, and we've seen this time and time again, where people come in with this 80 page proposal and the board need one page bullet points and cost <laughs> and they don't get it. And therefore the proposal will never go forward. Many of the proposals for transformation and change, and also more importantly, you know, the risk side of things um, have failed because of an inability to communicate correctly with the board. And irrespective of whether they're observer seats or whether they're executive board seats, these people um, hold the authority for those various committees. You'll, you'll generally have a chairman, like for instance, I'm, a, I'm chairman of the Remco committee on two of the companies that I serve on at the moment, as an example. So there's nothing really that's gonna happen around, around finance or, or you know, audit without my knowledge and without my sanction. So, you know, you, it's very important that we understand that there, there is a shift that also needs to take place on a board. Douglas and I are working on a project at the moment. We've got, we've got a series of gentlemen over the age of 80, okay, sitting on the board. But they don't understand, okay, the changes in the world, in the market enough that they really want lunch and to do lunch and to tinker around the spreadsheet, right? But they don't have the the level of competence in a in a fast changing, moving, disruptive world that we're currently working within to to comprehend that change. So therefore, it's additional work by the CEO. He or she has got spent around the education. But as I said before, the bigger issue is communicating with the board from whether you're ex internal or whether you're external trying to make change around transformation on some of the topics that we've just described is very difficult because un unless you're embedded so for instance we we understood that hr was not was, was that there was a big question around what is the value that hr is bringing so purpose and and people and well-being and all those good things came under the chief people officer so they put they that person had a seat at the board right so because hr directors were not being heard and that's it's quite a fact that unless you're heard at the board and you're able to communicate effectively with the board things are not going to take place very fundamentally yeah. irrespective of doing a small project and hopefully leading to a larger project no the board have to sanction the sign-off right has to be approved by board douglas what, what would you have to say about that yeah. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with jeff's comments and i've got maybe um additive views to that is first of all i think the role of the ceo is now a much more complex role in terms of stakeholder management and the board is just one set of stakeholders. I think we are entering into a world of, of regulators, community stakeholders in which organization operates in, et cetera, et cetera. And, yeah. and so this, as we know, it's a lonely position. But I think the, the positive thing on boards is that is for CEOs to embrace board members who don't necessarily have what I call dominant industry logic. And um, the reason why I say that is because we know that the number one the, the one thing that really prevents innovation in any organization is is 
an over-reliance on industry logic. So take, for example, the executive recruitment market in the world. So you would find that anybody who wants to recruit at C-suite level will want a pedigree executive uh, from within that industry. But I really challenge that to say, well, why? Because sometimes having an executive from another industry with different skills and abilities mm. can actually elicit new ways of thinking. And so I have the same view with board members and many times board members will not have uh, the infamous dominant industry logic. And so it's again, how you manage the board members in terms of the the value that they can bring to the organization. But more than importantly, is how do you tell a, a, a composite story as the CEO to get everybody aligned? And it's not a function of trying to herd cats. To do that, again, comes back to a very clear vision purpose that Karen spoke of, a very clear long-term plan that that goes beyond horizon one and two, but into that horizon three or you know, organizational thinking. And so, and it's also that ability to, you know, simply put, because trust is really around just spending quality time asking questions, really deeply refined questions of whether it be a board member, whether it be a regulator, and listening carefully. Because when you listen carefully, you really get the um, you really get the insights that you you seek. So uh, I do believe that um, again that philosophy of slowing down to speed up, having a a very mindfulness approach to how you build these unique relationships and that actually ultimately you want the board to be stronger as a whole versus the individual components and i think there's an art and a science to that um, which in some cases may be more challenging than others but it's certainly you know something i fundamentally believe is a great opportunity space i think that you know a lot of it comes down again to creating that compelling vision and, and karen i think i'd like to ask you this if if you're you're dealing with somebody or an organization where they're they're stuck in the day to day stuff, um, where's the first place that they that they can start or leadership can start to begin to craft that compelling vision that's going to bring the rest of the people on board? For the leadership team, uh, for for me, it starts it starts actually in the leadership the top leadership team because often their level of conversation and dialogue. Uh, is uninspiring. So it starts at the core values level. O often when we do a culture diagnostic, you know, the senior leaders will say, oh, yeah, we're really clear about the core values. We hold people to account. Everybody else says absolutely not. So it starts on a very personal journey. But, you know, what, what are, how are they showing up with each other? What is their purpose for being in this leadership team? And often, you know, I, I ended a leadership team the other week and I, I asked each leader to think about what their contribution to their team was uh, and what they would like to um, ask of the team. And every single leader, apart from the CEO and the HR director, thought about the team that they were leading rather than the leadership team that they just spent two days thinking about the core values in. And that's part of the challenge. Which team are we talking about? And, you know, most leadership teams, in my experience, unless until you bring make them more cohesive, are a group of leaders, not a leadership team. So we talk about coordination and integration, you know, with inconsistency. Really high-performing organizations you know, individual leaders give up something because it's best for the business as a whole. Culture is about the collective. There is no room for I in culture. It's about the we. 
So I would start by being really clear, what's the purpose from each, from that leadership team about why they think they exist? And what difference are they trying to make as a leadership team? I'd like to ask you each this individually is, is give me an example of a really great success story where you have come in and helped these organizations establish or reestablish this trust. Cause trust is very easy. It's very easy to destroy. You can do that very quickly and it can be a single action and event. It takes a very long time to build up. So I guess, Jeff, I'll start with you. Can you, can you share an example with me where you've really, yeah, I, can show an I can show an example. It's an example that I'm very proud of. Um, it's a company in Europe that was only, um, you know, sort of uh, turnover-wise, uh, about seven million, roughly five to seven million. Uh, when I went in, it was a, an absolute mess. Um, the company was a mess. We had twelve offices in Europe. Uh, we had partnership in uh, Russia, Middle East, and Africa. Um, I had to do a SWOT analysis of the whole business um, of the twelve offices, which I did. I then flew back to New York to get the money. Um, and once I got the money and I, and I said to my boss very clearly, happily do the, the, the speed of this transformation, but um, I do not want to be micromanaged. I report to you daily and I will fly monthly um, to sit down with you uh, across everything that I'm making significant change on. And so we ran a, we sustained um, a, a vertical of, it, of the existence while I was doing the change from underneath and then um once i launched I, I fixed all the problems in the organization from headquarters to manufacturing to all the countries um and then i reset um i've reset the sales machine the customer service machine the manufacturing machine and the distribution machine and then i took that business to 250 million plus in just over two and a half years um so that was an example now what why, how did I make that that work? A couple of things. It wasn't just about, some of it was joining the dots up. Some of it was strategy. It was the composition of the, of the people that I brought in for the transformation that made a big difference. Taking people from a product bias to a solution bias, a lot of them didn't make the grade. So I had to replace those people in, in the various countries, open up new offices, re-KPI'd it, and then obviously new products and then drove significant performance with existing and with new. Um, so that, that was it. But trust became a big part of it. And culture was a massive part because I'm dealing with multilingual culture. And I remember um, my chap in Portugal saying, Jeff, you haven't just created a new culture, you created a new religion. I had mm. bigger percentage of buy into, you know, employee emotional side of things, driving better performance, not wanting to leave actually passion and commitment to driving. And of course, that's all performance driven and metrics driven. Um, but I think the intelligences were there. So, yeah, we had the IQ. Sure, we had a bigger, stronger area of emotional intelligence, but we did have decency intelligence. We did have spiritual intelligence. Um, we had wisdom. We had knowledge, uh, knowledge share, um, a lot of new initiatives, a lot of work. But it was so worthwhile. Yeah, it was it was really worthwhile. So that's one of many, but probably the most significant for this conversation. And Karen, how about you? Do you have a great example to share with us? Yeah, I, I did some, um, it was a company that had, had 
had acquired lots of different businesses and we had 20, 20 general managers in a room who had been at war. They hadn't been talking, they, they'd, been, they'd been business owners who have now been acquired and they hadn't kind of really, really, they hadn't gelled. So we had two days in the room with them using peer coaching um, where they were standing up. They, we did a leadership assessment. They were standing up, um, presenting their own assessment and in small groups, creating, really being courageous about having a different type of discussion. We were kind of coaching them. So they'd spent two days doing that. And then actually at the end of those two days, one of the very contentious general managers who'd been behaving very badly, um, when we, when we again offered them to say, you know, what's this network of general managers, um, mean to you now? He stood up and apologized and he said, actually, I have to offer an apology. I've been arrogant, I've been rude, I've been disrespectful, uh, and actually I haven't I haven't been thinking about what the what the larger holding company can can offer um what I can offer to them. I've just been thinking about what I can take from them. And that created a whole different cross-fertilized um atmosphere. So they were they were open, they were courageous. They had a different kind of conversation. Um, and actually, the peer coaching carried on every week after the event, um, the two-day event. So it, it, it set up a different relationship. It enabled, they chose to be vulnerable, and there were public apologies, which... Wow, that's per- pretty I, powerful. Yeah, yeah. And Douglas, how about you? Yeah, I am. Um, one that resonates really strongly with me was a. Um, it was actually an, an executive sponsor role on, on a big collaboration program, spanning twenty two thousand staff and six million customers. Um, I, I came into a, a project which was looking to extract value across various business units, and they were very much siloed and, and in some cases, competitive against each other. Um, and uh, the, you know the, the the revenue at that point was fourteen billion on on those combined businesses. And the leader, the executive leader who was running the program, really was a micromanager and instilled fear. And um, the project was absolutely failing uh, in every endeavor. And I, I took over. And the first thing I did was I really looked at the team that was there. I, I handpicked you know um, some team members. I didn't get rid of too many. Um, thankfully, they were good people. They just were misguided and led uh, incorrectly and so uh, first of all I, I i just you know instilled the passion in the hearts of my direct team that was responsible for this program and the execution of this program i listened carefully i listened to what they had to say you know what their views and perspectives were and how we should run the program um and then collectively you know we we started a a rejuvenation of the program and, and communicating across twenty two thousand people uh, similar to karen we had um we had coaching environments. We we created coaches in each of the divisional businesses and ge- geographical businesses. So it was coach the coach, mm-hmm. um, and it was it was quite interesting. That Jeff mentioned cultures. You know, there were certain locations I had to dress in some way very formal, and some locations it was very informal. And mm-hmm. so you had to apply what I call contextual leadership in mm-hmm. going to where your teams are. Don't expect them to always come to you. Um, and we had fun, and we built an environment where. We said, listen, we haven't got this right. We, we, we were honest, we were vulnerable, 
Um, I certainly showed vulnerability with my team and we rebuilt it. We rebuilt the culture of collaboration and trust amongst mm -hmm. 22,000 people. And the success of that journey was, it was never about me or, or even my team. It was about, you know, doing amazing things in the communities that our businesses operated in, seeing the tangible difference where we made. And we took our revenue from 14 billion to 18 billion in two years. And so it just shows you when you unleash, and it comes back to that greater purpose, because what we did was we we had a, we had a very clear vision and a purpose of why we were doing this. It wasn't just to make profit and increase revenue. We actually wanted to make a difference in the communities that we operated in. Some of them were quite impoverished, and and it was a long term journey. And when you when we when we unleashed this in, amongst the teams and the teams on the ground, they came up with all the ideas. They came up with the ideas because it was localized. It was contextual. I I could never think of those. And so for me, it was lighting the flames in the hearts of layers of leadership teams, which culminated in, um, in huge um, celebration and success. And we celebrated every success. We built in a, a wonderful digital marketing tool internally where everybody could have a say, we could celebrate success. So it was a wonderful journey. Um, it eventually, I had two professors write a business case, which was published globally on it. Um, but it was, it was never, it was just about me steering a team. It was the team and the teams of the teams on the ground that really unleashed it. And that's what I think Casper happens at leadership level. If you can, if you can unlock that greatness um, and that trust um, and the belief, most importantly, the belief that you can achieve anything, um, you know, people will amaze you. And Douglas, I think it's a phenomenal way to wrap us up here. And, and Jeff, I'll, I'll pose one last question to you is if people want to reach out, you, you, you all have done an enormous number of things individually. We could spend the next 30 minutes going over the books you've all written and your bios and everything. But Jeff, if, if, if people want to reach out to you and, and explore this in greater detail, how you could possibly help their organization, where do they start? Well, I'll leave that one to Douglas. Um, but I think, you know, I'm looking forward to having lunch with you in Phoenix. Um, That's right. We'll see each other. In Phoenix. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, I think, um, look, I think most people know how to get hold of me and, and I'm online. I think what I'd like to leave this discussion with is that I think please, I want viewers to understand, please do not underestimate um, the market condition or the challenges that we're all um, coming up against, both uh, politically um, in business and in our own one-to-one -one relationships. I think that to respond to this strategically, um, to these, these economic events and, and other events, and even to the point where when I was on being interviewed on television, um, on the news, um, it was about, you know, um, female gender, uh, and and trust in public opinion and 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 so therefore to deal with this is going to take a high degree of creativity to overcome these challenges and and these assumptions and willingness to look certainly beyond the obvious right to address the threats that we've got coming in and, and I talked about this tsunami but I think that all I'm told and we can get through this and there are these threats turn into opportunities because there's always the, 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 the two sides of this, right? But I go back to trust. And I think that everything we've discussed on this call today is about, as far as I'm concerned, I describe it as a trust genesis. So what do I mean by that? I think we all got to start thinking about a self-awareness, but self-trust in, in the dynamics, right? 
relationship trust has never been more important in everything we do. Survival of the fittest is about the relationship. And then from relationship, organizational trust, right? Within, you know, we talked about how do we get a seat at the board? How do we communicate with the board? Well, trust is a big measure in the ability to be able to speak, right? And then, of course, if we can, you can create self-trust, relationship trust, organizational trust, we will lead into market trust. And my ultimate goal for the world is societal trust, right? Because each and every one of us, you know, that openness that uh, Karen talked about, that, that sharing and transparency and ability to be open, right? The heart can be open. And we can mm. start communicating, well, listening, understanding and communicating. So my whole one of my big things in life is to try and create that awareness in the world, because we can deal with mental health. We can deal with issues, but we need a foundation of trust. And to me, that is the glue. Right. Completely agree. And we will have uh, in, in, in a link to this episode, we'll have contact information for all of you. And I really want to thank you all. I, I know logistically we're in we're in different parts of the world. We had, we had a lot of different time zones that we had to try to coordinate this with. And I think it was a, an, an awesome discussion. And uh, Jeff, I know we'll see each other soon. And I yeah, just I'm really, excited to see you. Really great. Uh, really feel grateful for the opportunity to talk to you all about this today. So thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Brent. Thank wow. you. <laughs> wow, Brent, that that was. Uh, an absolutely fascinating conversation because I don't think there are two more important issues that you could be talking about today than the issues of trust and the issues of leadership. And I really want to thank you for bringing this discussion to us. Uh, and, and of course your guests as well, just a great, great conversation. Yeah. Thank you all. And, uh, and uh, again, I'm just really glad we, we got this done today. So thanks everyone. Brent, right. thank thanks Brent. Take care, everybody. And thank Bye. you, Brent. Thank you. Appreciate it. And thank you, listeners, for listening to this podcast, Smart Money Simplified. If you're a new listener and you like what you heard, hit the subscribe button. That way, every episode will be delivered directly to you and you won't miss an episode. We also humbly ask that you rate and share this podcast. In doing so, you will help others learn about it. I'm Bill Tucker. On behalf of Brenton Mikosh and MP Park Advisors, thanks again for listening. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, Member FINRA, and SIPC. 
Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors, LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.